Hi, Chapel Hill. My name is Pastor Rachel Toon. I spent the first 18 years of my life at Chapel Hill, but then came back a few years later uh, to be ordained there in August 2018. And I now serve as the Dean of Spiritual Formation at Montreat College and am an EPC teaching elder way out here on the East Coast. Uh, in Chapel Hill, you raised me, you called me into ministry, you ordained me, and you still pray for me, and I love you so much. I always will. And most importantly to know, though, I'm clearly the better looking of the two pastors. And so with that, congratulations, uh, Chapel Hill, on your 10-year anniversary in the EPC. 25 years ago that... <laughs> That's my daughter, in case you hadn't figured that out. 25 years ago, Rachel was the ribbon cutter for the dedication of this building. Four years ago, she was ordained as an EPC, EPC pastor in this building. Today, she's crossing into the border, over the border into Ukraine, where she's going to minister to refugees of Putin's invasion. Rachel is one of the 21 pastors that we have raised up and ordained and sent, and that is an important part of what we are going to be talking about today, our DNA, the nine qualities that taken together make Chapel Hill distinctive. There are many wonderful, strong evangelical churches in our community. It's almost an embarrassment of riches. But as more and more people, new people are making their way into our church post-pandemic we felt that it was worthwhile to say as clearly as we can who we are. What makes us, us? What is our DNA? Over these last weeks, we've talked about it in terms of three categories. Our head, what do we believe? Our heart, how we behave, and our hands, what we do. Our head category, our core convictions are we are reformed. We are egalitarian. We ordain both men and women to the ministries of the church. And we are spirit-filled. We are those Presbyterians who welcome the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in, in our church, in our ministry. And then in our heart, we talk about those qualities that we really hope to embrace, that we seek to embrace. We embrace courage. We embrace humility. We embrace accountability. And today I want to begin to talk about what we do, our hands, and this day, particularly as we commemorate our entry into the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, we're going to talk about something that is special to us. We honor our legacy. That is another important part of our Chapel, Chapel Hill DNA. We have always been diligent to remember, to honor those who've gone before us, the heritage that they have preserved and, and that they have entrusted to us. In our self-absorbed culture, that doesn't find much value in the things of the past, that is distinctive. In our individualistic culture that does not value organizations, does not value denominations, that is distinctive. We don't worship the past, we don't live in the past, we don't dwell in the past, but we remember it and we honor the heritage that has been handed on to us and then we will pass it on. We will honor our legacy. And our text for this morning comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy is the last of the letters from Paul that we possess before he was executed by Emperor Nero. It was written to a young son in the Lord, someone precious to Paul, this young man named Timothy. And I want you to listen as Paul reminds Timothy of his great legacy of faith. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is the word of the Lord. I am the worst selfie taker in the world. The other day, we visited our son Cooper and his wife Deb and Cece. We visited them in their new high-rise apartment in Tacoma. And so we went up on the observation deck, and I thought it would be great to capture a picture with a cool background. Now, this is the final product, and it's not bad, but I'm telling you, getting there was torturous because I am so pathetic. I cannot get everyone in the frame, and when I do, it is unflattering. And then, when I finally am ready to take the pick, I can never find the button. Ever. Ever. I, you know, I can't do it. I, I discovered that there is a feature on, on my phone where if I say smile, it will take the picture. Smile. Click. And the problem is, my phone sometimes doesn't seem to hear me. Or... <laughs> chooses to mock me, and I'm not sure which it is, so we will be sitting there, and I'm holding my phone, and we're staring into our own nostrils, and I'm repeating the word, smile, 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 and those who are with me who don't know this feature on my phone, who are smiling bigger and bigger and bigger, are thinking to themselves, this guy is losing his mind, so I hate selfies, but I may be the only one. We live in a selfie age. Every day, 92 million selfies are taken. On June 21st, we will celebrate National Selfie Day. <laughs> well, some will celebrate it. I will not be a part of that. We even have a word to describe this obsession. I wonder if you've heard it. Selfitis. Selfitis. The practice is so prevalent and so disruptive that more and more areas are being declared no selfie zones. It is also dangerous. Just Google death by selfie and you will discover that so far, and I think this is an underestimate, 379 people have been killed while trying to capture a dangerous image that will garner millions of likes on social media. Of course, self-absorption is nothing new. It is the essence of our fallen human condition. We humans have always been obsessed with ourselves, with how we look and with how we are perceived and what others think of us, whether they like us or whether they don't like us. We've just never had the technology to memorialize our self-absorption until now. And this is not healthy. 
The danger is obvious when you find a body, as they did recently at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, with a selfie stick nearby. But it is also emblematic of a more dangerous trend in our culture, a growing indifference to everyone around us. A self-preoccupation that is so acute it couldn't care less that there are others around us. And even more, that there are others who ever came before us. Has there ever been a culture that was less aware, less interested, and perhaps less disdainful, more disdainful of our past than this one is? Our culture has selfitis. So what is the antidote for this pathological self-absorption? I think we find part of that in Paul's words to Timothy. He was a, a gifted young man who, it turns out, felt like he was in over his head. Paul had left him in charge of the church at Ephesus, and now in Paul's absence, Timothy was under attack. False teachers were distorting the gospel, legalists were perverting grace, and a bunch of the older people weren't willing to give this youngster a chance. The stress drove Timothy to tears, and Paul's letter was meant to encourage him and to bolster him. And I want you to notice this. The starting point of Paul's encouragement for him to keep pressing forward was an encouragement to look backwards, to remind him of his foundation. Paul calls to mind Timothy's rich spiritual heritage. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Paul is saying, you are, I know, you are overwhelmed, Timothy. You're feeling battered. You are feeling alone. You are not alone, though. You come from great stock. What a gift it is to have godly, believing parents. I thank God for my Christian home. I thank God for my parents who still are here worshiping on Sundays. I thank God that my mom still prays for me. I thank God that my dad calls me on Sunday afternoons and tells me what a great sermon it was. Most Sundays. <laughs> that legacy has grounded me. And grandparents, those of you who are grandparents and I am newly a part of that, that, uh, that group, you have no idea the spiritual impact that you can have on your ch- grandchildren. You do not doubt it and you dare not squander it. What are you doing as grandparents to introduce your children to this legacy that is yours? Timothy was blessed with a spiritual legacy that included a godly mom, a godly grandmother, and although his dad was apparently not a believer, God gave him a godly father too in Paul. Timothy had a rich spiritual legacy, and in this time of incredible insecurity, Paul reminds him of that. He grounds him in that. He reminds him of the spiritual truths he learned from Lois and from Eunice. He reminds him that he is not starting from scratch. He was building upon a foundation that had already been laid. He reminds him that he stands on the shoulders of those who had gone before him. He reminds him of his ordination when Paul and others laid hands on his head and prayed for him and invited the Holy Spirit to fill him. A spirit, he says, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. That was Timothy's foundation. One of the antidotes to spiritual selfitis is to remember. It is to be reminded that we are part of something that is larger than ourselves and that is something that is longer than our own lifespan. 
to remember those who came before us, our spiritual fathers and mothers, our spiritual grandfathers and grandmothers, people who we will never meet on this side of glory, who faithfully and sacrificially gave and led and served so that you might be sitting here today. I will be forever grateful to Paul and Della Ruth Neal for founding this church that I am privileged to pastor. I honor Paul's memory. I owe him a great debt, and so do you. And then these people, take a look. These charter members whose names are captured in the glass over our chapel doors. Have you ever noticed them? Ernest Gustafson, Kenneth Hunt, Thomas Wilkinson, Samuel Jerisich, William Kimball, Vincent Scanzi. Are these names familiar to you? These ought to be familiar to you. They are the names of our parks. They are the names of our streets. They are the names of our Gig Harbor heritage. But did you also know they were part of our Chapel Hill heritage? You never met them. They are long gone, but they sacrificed to buy this land. They cleared the property with their own hands. They built a chapel larger than they needed because they believed that there were others who would come after them. And look at us. We are those others. We are the fruit of their faithfulness. How ungrateful would it be? How selfish would it be to have received this gift that has been handed to us? The gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gift of the spirit of Christ, a gift that has been preserved and passed on through the people who built this chapel on a hill. How foolish would it be for us to forget and neglect the legacy of faith that they have entrusted to us. And so we work diligently not to forget. We honor our legacy around here. We do so with a classic service every Sunday morning. We honor our legacy with St. Andrew's Sunday when we scroll the names of every deceased member of Chapel Hill. I always note the name Tom Everett because Tom's was the first funeral that I performed here 35 years ago. 360 names follow his. 360 names, most of whom I have buried and many of whom I remember. Those people were precious to me and to this church. And once a year, we pause to remember them and thank God for them. This is our legacy. And we honor it. We do the same on Memorial Day. We did it just this last week. We present the colors. We stand in honor of those who paid the supreme price to protect the right of worship. Fewer and fewer churches in our land are doing this. It is increasingly out of favor to speak well of our nation, to do anything that smacks of patriotism, but this is our legacy, and we honor it. Our legacy wall reminds us of our past. You can see it over there in the corner. Our cornerstone reminds us of those who gave sacrificially to build this room in which we worship God. Our memorial stone reminds us of those who paid off $5 million of debt so that we could give ourselves away beyond these walls $600,000 annually in perpetuity. This is our legacy, and we honor it. And we also honor our legacy this day as we celebrate being a part of a great denominational home. I realize that there are many who couldn't care less what denomination we are. They might not have shown up this morning. But to you, we are just Chapel Hill. You came because you wanted a good place to teach your kids. 
You came because you wanted a place to help with you with your marriage. You came because you wanted a place where you could worship as a family, where you could get some help with your addictions, where you could be a part of serving our community. Presbyterian, Schmesbyterian, you couldn't care less. But I care. I care about our Presbyterian legacy. I care that I have a group of pastors who understand me as no one else ever could. I care that I, I have a group of presbyters who support us and pray for us and encourage us. I care that we are part of something larger than ourselves. That we are accountable to more than ourselves. You don't need accountability when things are going well. But when things blow up, as they do, when pastors misbehave, when elders misbehave, when churches misbehave, that's when you're grateful for a denomination. In an age when high-profile pastors are falling left and right, when huge networks of churches shut down overnight, we need, we value the accountability and the support that the, our denominations can provide. You may not think you need a denomination. You may not care right now. But if you are here long enough, you will care. You will come to care that your pastors and elders are accountable to someone besides themselves. You will come to care that you are part of a larger body of churches that can leverage mission giving and provide relief in times of international crisis and plant new churches. You will come to care that you are part of a denomination that is defending our constitutional right to believe and worship as we see fit at a national level in a time when those rights are under attack. That too is our legacy. And we honor it. Our legacy is something worth remembering it is worth honoring, but it's more than that. It's also something to be passed on. I want to share two more verses from Timothy 1. I'm not ashamed, Paul writes, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, he says to Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That word entrusted was an ancient banking word. It meant a treasure that had been placed in the care of a custodian who would preserve it, protect it, and return it exactly as it had been received. And Paul here is talking about the treasure of the gospel of Christ, a gospel that had been entrusted to him, and now he had entrusted to Timothy, a deposit, as he puts it, that is precious. It is to be guarded, protected, preserved, and handed on exactly as we have received it. And that's the second half of our legacy. Not only are we remembering our past, but we are guarding and handing on the treasure entrusted to us. When we say we honor our legacy, we're not just looking backwards, we're looking forward. What is the legacy we will hand on? What will be said of us by our spiritual children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren? Will we be found faithful? Last week, a man in our life group said, I was looking at some Chapel Hill pictures taken in 1972. I didn't recognize a single person. And it made me wonder, 50 years from now, what will people think when they look at a picture of me in it? Someone they don't recognize. Will they Think, what will they think of what I handed on to them? Exactly right. Exactly the right question. I mentioned our cornerstone earlier. Take a look at it again. When your children ask you, 
Say to them, these stones shall be to the Lord a memorial forever. What we have built here, and not just our buildings, but a spiritual legacy of life and hope and peace through Jesus Christ. A legacy of loving God with all our hearts and loving our neighbors as ourselves. This is what we hope to pass on to our children and our grandchildren and their children. Is there any more important legacy that we can hand off to our next generation? Two weeks ago, our granddaughter, Cece, was in worship with us. She's in worship with us right now, coloring something on the floor. But when the music was playing, she was clapping. And when the song stopped, she cheered loud. And when she saw my face on the screen, she cried out, Papa! Papa! And during the times when she was less engaged, Ezra White, the seven-year-old son of pastors Ellis and Rachel, sat with and entertained her. And it was very sweet. But it was the last moments of the service that I will never forget. When I ask you to raise your hands to receive the benediction as we do every Sunday, I looked over and I saw this. Ezra standing there helping to hold Cece's hands up to receive her blessing. It was a precious and unforgettable picture of the essential task before all of us. What will we do to pass on our legacy of faith and faithfulness? What will we do to hold up the arms of the next generation so that they too might receive the blessing that comes from knowing Christ? What will you do to pass on the great deposit of faith that has been entrusted to you? These are not easy days for the church. Our society is less interested in what we have to say and more antagonistic when we say it. Like Timothy, it is very easy for us at times to feel insecure, timid, outnumbered, overwhelmed. But we are not alone. We stand in a great tradition of faith and faithfulness. We have been entrusted a treasure and we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let us do our part going forward as Paul's words ring in our ears. Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands for God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. That is our legacy, and we will honor it. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we can't just determine that it will be so. It is only because we participate with you, we co co cooperate with you, that we will be able to do this heavy and important task of handing on uncorrupted the treasure of the gospel which has been handed to us. By your grace, Lord, would you do that? Would you help us to be those kinds of people? Corporately, but individually. One person, one mom, one dad, one grandpa, one grandma, one kid at a time. Would we be found faithful? Would you fan into flame the fire that is in us because of the spirit that lives within us so that we will not have a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of self-control. God, I thank you for this sweetheart church. I thank you for decades of faithful witness, of courage, of generosity. And I pray, Lord, that that which you have begun this day, you will complete in the day of Christ Jesus. 
May we be a part of that, for we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to close in song. We're completely dependent on Jesus and his spirit to live out that legacy and to pass it on. So let's sing out these words to Jesus, our Redeemer. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.